the biggest poison in us is regret. I think there are a lot of people that have dreams and aspirations of things that they always wanted to do, but it wasn't the right time, or they didn't have enough money, or they didn't have enough experience. It's never the right time. You're never going to have the right experience. And all of a sudden, you wake up and you're 70. And you're like, God, I wish I could have done it. It's what you don't do that screws with you later on. I get one shot at this life. This is it. And I don't want to go through life being the 80% version of me. I don't want to look back and be like 77 and be like, I didn't do that. There's so much I want to do, and I love life so much, I don't want to miss it. Yo, yo, what up? You know it is SP the Ghost, L-O-X-D Block. I want to give a big, big shout out and a love is love shout out to my fan. You know what I mean? Ill community, the Sober is Dope podcast community. You know what I mean? I appreciate what y'all doing. Um, we like to tell people, me personally, I like to tell people, a lot of us, you search for balance in life, man. I'm not telling people don't drink. But I'm just saying incorporate healthy things in your lifestyle. You know what I mean? Nothing wrong with being sober. Nothing wrong with being chilling. Getting a nice juice. You know what I mean? Nice fruit juice. Nice veggie juice. Nice fruit. A nice veggies, period. And just do something to feel good about yourself. To put something good in your body. To say you did something good for yourself for the day. Take it one day at a time, man. Just, you know. There's nothing wrong with being sober. There's nothing wrong with chilling, relaxing, and juicing up. Ghost told you so. D-Block. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Sober is Dope podcast. I'm your host, Pop Buchanan, and I'm extremely excited to have our special guest today who's going to be able to talk to us about a lot of great things from running to teenage addiction and overcoming adversity as a young father. His name is Miguel Reyes, and he is the founder and creator of Staying Fit Old Dad. Um, he's also a personal, a personal trainer, and he's just uh, doing amazing things the recovery community he also is the host of the staying fit old dad podcast and he's a great father friend to many and he is family to sober is dope and for the purposes of him being family we will call him by his name migs because that's what i like um and migs how are you feeling today and welcome to sober is dope i'm feeling so so blessed thank you so much for having me on here and uh yeah definitely you're a big brother to me uh, a one since day one, since I met you brother. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's been amazing. And this is, this is, I'm so excited to be on here. Um, I, I'll, I'll be honest. And, and I hope nobody else that I've featured on the podcast takes us some type of way. I've been on a few podcasts the last few months, man, but I, I, I don't think there's one that I've been more excited about to collaborate than with you. Oh man, you know what? That's a pleasure, brother. That's a pleasure. And you know, today I really I'm glad I have you because you're the first guest that I'm gonna have that could really talk to the younger people that's in recovery because your journey started like most of us, um, uh, we start young in our addiction, right? But you are the exception to the rule because you found your recovery 
while you were young in your um, addiction, which is a beautiful thing. Like, I really wish sometime looking back, if I could have found my recovery in my 20s, opposed to my late, th- my mid, my early 30s, I don't imagine where my life would be today. But um, so that's exciting for me. And I just want to really talk to you about your journey and everything. You have a particular story that I love. Um, you grew up with very you was the, you were the child of very young parents, right? So you had your parent, your mom and dad. I think they were what, 17, 18 when they had you. Yeah, my yeah, my mom was uh, three days before she turned 17 and my dad had just turned 19. Right, right. So that's different. Right. And and then, you know, the beautiful thing about your story is that you kind of like mirror your reality with your dad and how that relationship kind of echo with your son. And the birth of your son was one of the catalysts that helped you find recovery because you used to reflect on yourself that you didn't necessarily want to be like your dad. Not saying that your dad is bad, but you know, most of us that's been in recovery, we had to deal with parents that had to deal with their addictions. And it's tough when you're really young. And the one thing we don't want to do is pass on that generational issue to our love to our children. Um, and I love that about yourself. So can you really go back? I mean, I really want to hear about that particular angle, you know, growing up in that environment and how you managed to find your recovery and what it really meant being a young father. And can you elaborate on that for us? Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, like I said, my, uh, my mom was just about to be 17. Uh, she spent her 17th birthday in the hospital with me still. Uh, my dad had just turned 19 and, um, from, from what I'm told, I mean, my dad already kind of had issues even before I was born. Um, and even in my young childhood, I remember seeing it a lot. Um, he, he was an alcoholic. He was a drug addict. Um, I remember he was both physically and mentally abusive. I don't know why, but for some reason I was the only one that never took the brunt of any of the physical abuse. Um, I remember seeing him get physical with my mother, with my stepmother later on. Um, he, he would always be the type to pick up beer muscles around other people. And, um, I, I said this before, too. I, I swear that just my presence might have saved my dad from getting into a few physical altercations because who wants to fight? Who wants to beat somebody up or even fight somebody in front of their child? Um, but uh, it was tough growing up with it. Uh, I remember just uh, I at first I didn't understand um, the alcohol and that that was the reasoning behind his behavior. It was just kind of like, hey, my dad would be normal. Um, he would always take me bowling on Fridays and Sunday nights when he had me on the weekends. Um, cause him and my mom split when I was two. And, um, so he would take me bowling. And to me, that was fun. Cause my dad was taking me out. We were hanging out. I was around his friends and it was cool. And then as the night would go on, his attitude and his demeanor would always change. And at such a young age, I never really comprehended that this is what alcohol was doing. Um, it was just something that would happen. And I remember one particular night that changed my life. So we were leaving we were leaving the bowling alley. I don't remember exactly how old I was. I just know I was young. Um, and there was four guys in the car and I was sitting on the back seat on the floor, literally sitting on top of a case of Coors Light. And anytime anybody was empty, it was my job to hand them another beer. So they were all just drinking while they were driving home from the bowling alley. And my dad got into a car accident. He hit the other car like head on, like headlight to headlight. Um, Both cars were still operable and 
They both got out of the car. They were both yelling at each other. Um, and then what I could only imagine is that they probably realized that the other driver was also drunk. They both started laughing and then both got in their cars. And it was at that point when my dad tried to drive off, one of his friends actually like blocked him in and said, enough is enough. Either you let Miguel out of the car or I'm calling the cops. And that was the only reason my dad even wanted to let me out of the car that night. Um, he thought he was perfectly fine, but the, the fear of getting arrested is what actually made him come to and let me out of the car. That was the first night that I realized I didn't want to be around my dad drinking anymore. And so I still wanted to be around my dad. I still loved him. I still love that we hang out. So I actually asked, uh, we were going through some type of custody situation at the time. And my mom was, my mom was always very supportive of my dad. She never tried to keep me away from my dad. She would always try and be there, but she obviously wanted me to be safe. So one of the stipulations that I put in was I said, I don't want my dad drinking that stuff anymore. So of course he still did. He would put it in different cups. I wouldn't know any better because I was young. What do I know? Um, but he still didn't. It was one thing like from that day, I always said like, man, I'm never going to drink. I'm never going to drink like this. This this shit is horrible. Like it, it looks disgusting. I remember I think I was 12 years old. The first time he let me try a sip at a party. It tasted absolutely disgusting. Um, and I hated everything everything about it. And I genuinely thought like, I'm never going to drink. I'm never going to drink. And, um, fast forward a few years and just, I, I got myself in some legal trouble. And unfortunately when I couldn't smoke weed anymore at that point, like drinking became like what I was able to do. Cause I could go to the bars and whatnot, but yeah, just my entire, my entire childhood. I always said like, I'm never going to drink. I actually, my entire high school years. And it's funny because not many recovering alcoholics can actually say this. I can count on one hand how many times I was actually drunk before the age of 21 uh, because it just it had zero appeal to me because I didn't want to be like him. Right. And um, I had I had kids. I had twins at 18. And again, I, I, I wanted to be better, but I was too busy into smoking weed, selling weed. I thought that was the lifestyle I wanted to live. And I thought I was better than my dad because I wasn't drinking. That was all. And, and again, I think back then I thought it was cool because I would, I knew that my dad had a drinking problem. I knew that my dad had a substance abuse problem with every drug you can think of. And weirdly enough, weed is the only thing I never saw him do. So weed was the one thing that attracted me. Cause I was like, this is the one thing dad doesn't do. So it's gotta be the one thing that's not terrible. Right, and so right. like I got into that and that got me in legal trouble. And then that turned into drinking as an alternative when I had this, the day I got arrested, what man, this shit was like out of a movie, man. Um, and like, just like the way it happened, it was like, it was some scary shit. And I'm not a big guy, as you can see. Um, and I was even smaller because this is before I was drinking. So I wasn't even fat at this time. I was probably actually, I was probably built exactly the way I am right now, which is no muscle. Right. Um, and so I remember, uh, I was, I was actually selling weed and I thought I was cool. And, uh, I actually stopped, but I was, I did a favor for someone who I thought was a friend who had got himself into some trouble prior to that. And, uh, I became his scapegoat. So I give him some, some stuff and I get pulled over. And this is why I said, it's like some stuff out of a movie. It's crazy thinking back on this now. So I remember I'm getting to this four way stop sign. And it's weird because this is actually a few, only a few blocks away from where I live now, but I had no idea where this neighborhood was at this time. Cause this is back in 2000 six or 2007. So I pull up to this four-way stop sign and I didn't realize how close I was to a school. So there's a cop that has his lights on 
but he's just chilling at the four-way stop. In my mind, I just thought, oh, cool. He's like a crossing guard. He's part of whatever's going on. I pull out. I go through the four-way stop sign. He comes behind me. Another cop comes in front of me. And this is the thing I'll never forget because I'm a Steelers fan. This is the shit that blew my mind. Yeah, I don't know if they thought they were getting Pablo Escobar. I don't know what they thought they were getting. But this dude has a Franco Harris jersey and he's pushing a baby stroller like shit is normal. And he pulls a, sh- a like a rifle or a shotgun out of this baby stroller. He jumps up onto the hood of my car and he <laughs> points it through the windshield and says, hands out the window, hands out the window. Meanwhile, I'm not a big dude. I, you know, what I mean, I, at this point in my life, I had never I never had a gun pointed at me. Yeah. Um, I, I was I was. Yeah, I, I was that was new to me. Like, I thought I was a thug. I thought I was this. I thought I was that. And that was the day I found out, man, you are not who you think you are. <laughs> yeah, so they uh, the, the the other thing that blows my mind is so this was one. It was a night. The car was a 1990. And so it was one of those like when you close the door, the seatbelt rolls back on the track. Right. I still remember this. Yo, they ripped me out the car through the window. To the point where when I got my car back at an impound, the seatbelt was still back because they never even opened the door, wow. like literally just ripped me right out through. It was it was some wild shit. And uh, like I said, I don't know who they thought they had. Um, but uh, the 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 crazy thing about it is this is how I also knew I was that I was fucked pretty much. So I had a legal job at the time as well. And I was making decent money. I had a couple hundred dollars in my pocket from um, from work because I was on my way to work at the time. And uh, I was also selling bootleg movies at the time. And so I had a couple hundred dollars in another pocket from some movies that I was taking to someone. And I remember the cop, he pulls money out of my pocket and he goes, no. And he pulls money out of my other pocket. No. And he pulls money out of the other pocket and he goes, got it. And I start thinking through my head. I was like, motherfucker. Like that was, they got me with marked money. So yeah, at what? that point I knew I was done. So they take me to police station, you know, fast forward. Um, I had to plead guilty to a uh, delivery of a control. Um, and that got me. Luckily, the uh, the lawyer was very good at his job, worked together. I had no priors at the time. Um, I had a decent amount of character witnesses. And so I was able to get a uh, three years of state parole. And it's weird because they labeled it as parole instead of probation. Um, because I guess what that man was in the state of Pennsylvania, that pretty much if I fucked up, that it would, it would max me out to what was originally supposed to be, um, a seven year sentence. And I would spend the rest of my time in state. Yeah. This was back in, uh, two in 2008, man. Don't, and this was weed. It was, it was crazy. And it was only 45 grams of weed, but anything over 30 was, was considered a large amount back then. Wow. Um, so anyway, uh, so I deal with that and, you know, Luckily, again, man, I had an unbelievable PO who had a kind heart and believed in multiple chances because not even a year into my my sentence, I actually get a DUI. And so he actually I remember the first time I ever met him, he told me he goes, you if you ever have contact with the police, I need to know. Because you're, they'll run your name, and if if I find out from them before I find out from you, I'm maxing your ass out. Like the one thing I don't tolerate is lying and bullshit. And I said, all right, cool, that's fair. So I remember getting a DUI. I got a DUI. I actually called Drunk Tank DUI Center, whatever, at like four in the morning, and I actually called his office and I left a message. Uh, I remember he bangs on my door at nine o'clock in the morning. And he goes, yo, you are so lucky right now. He goes, 
I listened to my messages this morning and he goes, first message I see is from the police department telling me that they just picked up one of my, one of my, uh, people and that they got him on a DUI said, I was on my way here to lock you up. And he said, as I went in and I heard the older messages, you're lucky that your message came first. And you told me the truth. Um, for whatever reason, he didn't violate me, which, you know, looking back, he easily could have, but he let me out as well. So just one of the many examples of, you know, I, I just, I, I was just getting, I was just going wild. Cause as soon as I got put on papers, drinking became my thing. I was dating a girl and we could go drink and it was easy to go to the bars. All I had to do was not drink for a day or so before I had to go in and take a piss test. And back then they, um, the alcohol tests were only for like 24 hours. Um, unless you were like a habitual alcohol offender, because whatever test that they did for alcohol that could pick up multiple days, um, they were more expensive and they didn't make me take those at the time. And I knew that. So alcohol became my thing. I could drink, I could go to the bars, I could drink at home. And I would just, I was drinking and driving pretty much every night. And weirdly enough, the night I got the DUI was probably one of the least drunk I was that night. Um, and I actually got pulled over just for driving too slow, which was apparently just as dangerous. Uh, the cop flat out told me anybody who's driving too slow with a cop behind him has got to be hiding something. Right. Uh, Right. So I got that DUI and, you know, you would think that that would be a wake up call because, all right, looking back at that point now, I'm 21 years old. I'm already on parole. I could be looking at state prison if my if my PO wants to lock me up at this point. Um, he gives me a break. Now I got a DUI. So now now I'm, I actually have two different POs at this point because I have one for my criminal offense and I have one for my ARD for my DUI offense. And that still wasn't enough. I was still drinking, still drinking, still drinking. Um, and then I actually figured out, all right, I figured out how I could smoke weed on papers because I figured out that like, I was like, all right, I can, I can just smoke. And as long as I don't do it this many days before I go in, then I'll be cool. And my PO started giving me a break and he actually stopped piss testing me and this and that. And um, I had one close call where he brought us all in. He had to go out of town and he had to bring all those people in for piss tests. And there was like four of us sitting in a room and he's like, I got to go out of town. This is everybody that I have for the month. And he's like, I have, he only had goes you and you. And he pointed to two other people. I don't know if they were habitual def offenders or whatnot, but I pretty much got skated because I had never failed a piss test. So on that day, if he would have pissed me, I was dirty because I smoked the night before. He called me in that morning for an emergency piss. Um, wow. Dodged another bullet. Again, you would think I would learn. Like, right. I don't know. Like, I was just skating on by. Looking back, there is no doubt in my mind. I should have been in. I, sh I should have did at least a couple years in jail. Um, right. And and I just, I skated it. I don't know how. But um, just kept going, just kept going. And from there, it just, I don't know if I thought that, like, I was invincible, untouchable. But it just it just turned into nonstop, just like it it slowly turned into oh I'm just drinking with my friends every night. Then it was like oh we're going to the bars, we're doing this and that, and it it was before I knew it, it was like every night. But I was so early into my twenties that I didn't think it was a problem. Right. Um, I thought you know again I'm not like my dad. Now meanwhile, looking back, what I do realize now is that I was I was a shitty person. I was a shitty friend, a shitty son, a shitty most importantly, I was a shitty father because while this is going on, I had twin boys that were born in 2005 right. and they were premature. They had health issues. Um, their mom is an unbelievable mother. Um, to this day, I couldn't ask for a better mother for my children. She, she does anything and everything for them. 
Um, but I had not really been there for him. I would choose, I would do something in the morning and then I would choose to go partying at night. Instead, I would want to go hang out with my friends. Um, I remember on their second birthday, getting them a cake, blowing out the candles and at like four o'clock in the afternoon, wanting to go meet up with my friends to go hang out instead. And like wanted to go smoke and drink and just do all that party and stuff. And I was just super irresponsible. I was just a shitty father, to be honest. Um, and you know, fast forward a little bit, which we'll talk about that as well. Like even that right now is that's, that's something that I'm still paying the price to the day for this because they know the truth about everything. They know who I was. And, you know, now that they're in their teenage years, you know, kind of like the way I felt towards my father, they feel that way towards me now. And they kind of like, I don't want to say they want nothing to do with me, but they kind of want nothing to do with me. I get to talk to them on the phone and whatnot, but like, they don't really want to have an in-person relationship with me because they know that for many years I chose everything except them. So they're pretty much at a point where, where they just choose everything except me, which I don't blame them for, but it's something I'm working on. How old are they now? They'll be 16 in October. Wow. The twin boys will be 16. They big, man. Yeah, man. Uh, One of them them is actually legitimately taller than me. Wow. That's Um, awesome. It's, 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 which I knew would happen because their grandfather is like six, two, and their mom is like five, nine. Um, but, uh, you know, we were both young and she was just way more ready to be a parent than I was. Um, again, I love, I always have a special spot in my heart because she, she holds them down and she, my kids couldn't have a better mother. I wanted to say like one thing in all my years that I know is although they are a little, they're a little bitter right now when they're emotional, the fact that you found your sobriety and the fact that you want to be in your, their life and the fact that you're stable and you're there, give it time. I have faith that they'll come around. You know, they just probably, you know, they're at that teenage age where they're rebellious and they feel like, ah, oh, whatever. But the fact that they know is also helping them out, even if it's subconscious, because a lot of men, what they do is when the kids do that, they use that as another excuse to pull back even more. Well, at least I try, but they don't want nothing to do with me. And then that creates another 10 to 15 years of them not being available. My advice is just to remain emotionally available. Let them know no matter what you love them, you're here and you're present. Leave a channel of communication open and you'd be surprised one day they'll probably, they're most likely to come around. But I'm just happy that you found, they're still young. You know what I mean? 16 is young. Um, they still going to need their dad. So that's good. And you hit the nail on the head there because, and that's one thing. So it's funny. And I, I, I'm sorry, this story jumps around a little bit. Um, but that's, it's one thing that like, I think in my sobriety, like early on in sobriety, I'll be honest. I just thought, all right, I'm sober now. Like they have to forgive me. They have to forgive me. Um, and, and I was kind of, I was very, very pushy and that probably even made it worse. And my first year of sobriety was just, I'm sober. You guys got to forgive me. And, um, One thing I learned now is looking back, the more and more time I spend, you know, trying to work a program, trying to do the right things, trying to do the. I look back at my relationship with my father. So first and foremost, he's been sober for, I I forget exactly how many years, but it's more than 10. So yeah, like I said, my my dad's got a bunch of years sober under his belt. Um, But one thing that I learned that I had to, to accept is, so my kids aren't really treating me any different right now than I treated my own father. So he moved away when I was a junior in high school. Um, he was pretty much at the time, he was pretty much trying to skate away from some legal stuff and he was trying to get away and trying. It was a little bit of trying to restart his life and start fresh and a little bit of 
leave and avoid some legal trouble. It was a little bit of A and a little bit of B. And when he when he went to Florida, um, he sobered up shortly after, but I didn't believe it. So he was supposed to fly out for my high school graduation the next year. He ended up being late to my graduation, um, missed his flight. And I blamed it on uh, you probably drunk and high and doing this and that. And um, I, I, held, I held the ultimate resentment for so many years towards him for that. And then when I got myself into legal trouble, um, I asked him for some help. And he said he, he would help me with a little bit. And then he came on hard financial times and he couldn't help me. So I held I held the resentment for that as well, which looking back, that second part is on me like. I got myself into the trouble. I shouldn't be putting it on other people to help me get out of it. Um, so I, I just held like the ultimate resentment for him. And uh, after a few years, like I pretty much had zero relationship with him. I wouldn't talk to him. I wouldn't return his calls. And then I pretty much treated it like he was a shitty father because he wasn't up my ass trying to reach out to me regularly um, because he knew that he had to give me space. And what I find out is he was actually sobering up at that time. And through many, many, many attempts of sobriety, this was like the time that he was actually getting it right. So he was working a program. He was doing his thing. And it actually wasn't until like fast forward a bunch of years, I had zero relationship with him. And it wasn't actually until my youngest son was born and I sobered up that I reached out to him and I actually, uh, and I, it's funny, Ruan, just a little bit. I remember one time I lashed out to him and I said, you know, your grandson's about to be born. You already don't have a relationship with your first two kids and or uh, with your first two grandkids and you don't have a relationship with me and this and that. And like I lashed out and uh, I think I, I hit some buttons to the point where he finally said, you know, you don't have a relationship with those kids either. And, um, you know, maybe you need to evaluate yourself. Why don't you go have another drink? And he didn't call me an alcoholic, but uh, I knew what he was saying because he could hear my voice. I was drunk when I was lashing out at the time. So. That was like that was like a burning point. I probably didn't talk to him. I definitely didn't talk to him not one word until after I sobered up at that point. Um, and then I do remember when I sobered up, I actually had a conversation with my stepmom, who I always had a good relationship with because she was like the brunt of physical abuse. She took care of my little brother and sister, even when my dad was very, very active in his addiction. And she was kind of like the rock of that side of the family. And so I always held a relationship with her because that was how I could keep a relationship with my brother and sister. And when I sobered up, I actually had a conversation with her and uh, I said, you know, is my dad actually sober? Is he actually clean? She goes, yeah, Miguel, he's been clean for a few years. She goes, he's still an asshole, but uh, he's clean and sober, though. And uh, I was like, all right. So that actually led me to, to have a conversation with him and open up the dialogue. Um, that was the first time I told him, look, I'm going to AA now, too. I'm sobering up and I give him the utmost credit. And it's kind of giving me chills talking about this. Uh, it wasn't long after I told him that I sobered up in May and by July, maybe August, he, he, uh, planned a road trip and he came up to, he came from Florida up to Pennsylvania to see me. And that was, it was, it was so cool. Cause we went out to eat. Um, I took him to my church. I was very, very, very active in a church in my first few months of sobriety. Uh, I took him to a, I took him to church with me. Um, we got to see my little sister get baptized. Him and I went out to eat and then him and I went to an AA meeting and it was actually on, it was on my, it was my 90 day. So wow. he went, he went to my 90 day meeting with me and he actually got to watch me get my 90 day coin. And 
it was really cool because I forget what coin he was missing. Like his 11 or 12 year was the only coin for whatever reason it wasn't in his collection or nine year, I think. And I was able to, to get that coin from him at the meeting. And I was able to share in the meeting that day that like, you know, as far as I can remember, my dad was, my dad drank all of my active years. And then, uh, even when he sobered up and he would come out here, there were a couple of times I'd be drinking. And so it, that was the very first time, the very first time that my dad and I had ever been in the same room together. And we were both hundred percent sober. Very wow. first time ever. I was 30 years old. Um, or sorry, I just turned 31. I was celebrating 90 days sober. And that was the first time him and I had ever been in the same room together sober. And when I said that out loud, it made me cry. And it was crazy because we were in the meeting and like other people afterwards, just giving us hugs. Like, this is crazy seeing this father son relationship be healed. And, uh, him and I have a better relationship now than we ever had. Um, because of that, because sobriety brought us together. It got a chance to, you know, just throw, throw everything on the table and just let all this shit out, let everything out and realize like, you know, those are the people that we were, this isn't who we are now. And so that, I held resentment for him in so many years that he was sober and he wanted a relationship with me. That part right there makes it, I don't want to say easy, but it makes it why my kids feel the way they do about me now. It makes me realize as well why I have to be so much more patient in the time that it's going to take to rebuild and, and rekindle a relationship with them because it's no different. Because I'm sober, it doesn't mean they're supposed to drop everything and be like, all right, cool, we forgive you. So. So I definitely realized, you know, and it's, it's one of those things that like, because I was so resentful towards my father for so long, um, it's, it's one of those things that I realized that like, I also have to be patient now and waiting for, for my guys to be ready because it's no different. They're, they're in the same situation. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't there when I was supposed to be, I wasn't ready when I was supposed to be last thing they want to do is drop everything and, and, and come around to me. And so I'm, I'm learning that I'm trying to respect that. I'm trying to understand that. So I reach out to them. Um, I get to talk to them on the phone. Um, if they need anything, their mom knows I'm here. Their mom and I have a better relationship now than we've ever had. Um, as far as we can at least talk about things, um, you know, civilly or, you know, we can, we can just communicate, ask how each other's families are doing. So things are getting a little bit better, slower. Um, but again, I just, I just gotta be patient, you know, just like with the program, um, just like with my sobriety, just like with running, just like with life, everything is owed at one day at a time. It's the first thing I learned in the rooms. And it's one thing that applies to just literally to life. And it's the more and more I tell myself that the more I can be patient with the situation and just try to do the right thing. Because I know that if I just keep trying to force them to do something they don't want to do, it's only going to make the situation worse, which I'm, I'm obviously trying not to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to go back a bit. Um, and, after your probation and after you was arrested and stuff, you continued to drink. You found all these loopholes with your parole of your parole officer. And then, you know, you started working at TGI Fridays and that's where you met your wife. Right. And then you got, yes. you, know, you guys got together, you were dating and she didn't know too much of your drinking issues. Cause you guys did your little dating thing, but it wasn't until, you know, she was like, if you want to be with me, you got to put a ring on it. Right. And oh, yeah, she Beyonce the shit out of me. She Beyonce you. And then you. Yeah, just, for you, sure. You guys got married and, you know, you went on this 10 day trip um, at a 10 day wedding um, in Jamaica. 
And that's when you realize that you was blackout drunk the majority of the times. It was only those the little points of the service where you was able to stay sober. But for the majority of time, you was blacking out. And that's when you started to kind of like realize maybe you have a problem with your drinking. Um, can you talk to us about that and how your wife may have felt and how that helped you get to where you at today? Absolutely. So uh, I love my my wife will love to hear this as well. So like you said, I met her at a TGI Fridays. I was a server. She was a hostess. Um, and she was brand new and, um, I was young and doing my thing. So, you know, I would always try and flirt with the hostess to try and get extra tables sat and, you know, doing my thing and whatnot. And, you know, flirting turned into, turned into more and more. And we started dating. Um, and at that point, like I was still actively drinking, but I knew that I had squandered my relationship with my, with the twins. So I kind of, I wanted to have another kid cause I thought that because I have money now a little bit at the time, um, I thought I was more responsible. I thought I was in a better place in my life. Um, and I thought I was ready to be an adult, which I clearly wasn't. And I'm so glad she did this, but, um, she, when I told her like, let's have a, let's have a kid. She pretty much told me like, no, I'm not having a kid out of wedlock. I'm doing things the right way. So she Beyonce me. She said, if you like it, then put a ring on it. <laughs> so, so she won that battle. It didn't take long. Um, I think I probably asked her that in like January or like February. And when, when she, uh, when she said that, I think it was June, June, we went to a friends of ours wedding and that night, um, I was already, the wheels were kind of already turning and I was thinking about it. And I remember one of my coworkers at the time I was working at another restaurant in a, in a town nearby and um, we were actually at a co-worker's wedding. So everybody, a lot of people at the wedding were co-workers. So I, I knew a lot of people. So our table was all people that I worked with. And I remember two of the girls saying, so when are y'all, when, when is, when is your guys turn? Are y'all next? And I just remember thinking, shit, they just put me on the spot. I already know she's expecting it soon because I want to have a kid. So it was like two weeks later, I proposed. Um, and we were engaged for two years. And the destination wedding was absolutely awesome. It was really, really cool. Um, my wife didn't want a really, really big wedding. Um, you know, she didn't want to invite, she didn't want to have 200 people at the wedding, but me being, me being Puerto Rican, you know, I got like 500 people in the family and I was right, like, well, right. I can't just not invite family. So uh, I said, you know, let's just go, let's go fly to another country and let's just go get married there. And then, you know, nobody will follow us. And she shrugged off the idea. Um, and then I guess she was hanging out with her mom one day and her mom or sister, one of them actually mentioned a destination wedding. Um, and then because, it, because it came from people that are more knowledgeable, then all of a sudden it was a great idea. So <laughs> shout out to whichever one of them planted that bug. Thank you. Cause it worked out and it actually worked out exactly the way we wanted it to. We were able to invite 250 people and 20 people show up. So nice. it was exactly, it was exactly what my wife wanted, exactly what, um, what I wanted. So we flew out to Ochi Rios, Jamaica. Um, and prior to this, I think I'd already known I was an alcoholic. Um, I'd never said the words out loud. I'd never went to an AA meeting. I'd never looked it up. I'd never done any of that stuff. But I think somewhere in the back of my brain, I knew at that point, I was like, man, you're no better than your father. Um, you have a shit relationship with your kids. And I think the wheels were turning, but it wasn't quite there. Um, hence the fact that we chose a resort in which um 
I'd be allowed to smoke weed and be all inclusive and get to drink as much as I wanted from sun up to sundown. So we go to Ochi Rios and like you said, it, man, it actually looking back, there was all the signs. Literally, we didn't even get on the plane yet. And I, my mom actually just showed me these posts as well for something else. So the night before we even left for Jamaica, cause it was like a middle of the night that we had to go out there and I was posting on Facebook, like, Hey, who wants to get drunk with me the night before I go help send me off the right way. And like, all I cared about was getting drunk every day. You would find, I would just find an excuse to get drunk, to just get shitty, um, just night after night. And so on this particular night, I'd never flown before ever. So everyone was telling me like, don't get too shitty. They won't let you on the plane. Don't get too shitty. They won't let you on the plane. Um, I didn't believe that. And I, I got wasted to the point where like, I was like falling asleep on the way to the airport. Um, luckily, luckily there was like an hour and a half or two hour bus drive between the airport and the, uh, between like the local airport and the airport that we were flying out of, in which I was able to sober up a little bit. Cause looking back, um, I was probably too drunk to get on the plane at that point. And so as soon as we get off the plane, I mean, I'm, I'm drinking on the plane as well. Um, you know, my sister-in-law who is not an alcoholic, my wife doesn't drink. So my wife doesn't do anything. She's, she had her fun partying when she was in high school and she just kind of like put that behind her. So, um, my sister-in-law and my brother-in-law, you know, they're getting the little Tito shooter. So I'm like, Hey, we'll jump in on this party. So I start drinking from the plane and I didn't look back. We flew out on, I think we flew out on like the sixth or seventh. And I was pretty much drunk up until our actual wedding day on the 13th. Um, every morning I was getting room service. I actually remember two nights in a row. Um, I pissed off the room service people because I was so drunk. We had 24 hour room service for one of the restaurants because we were in a Butler suite and two nights in a row, I ordered food and passed out before they even got there with the food. And it's only like a 20 minute wait. So I pissed them off because twice they actually came out to our cabin and I wasn't even able to answer the door because I was passed out. Right. Um, once I passed out on the patio back, like right by the pool and looking back, man, I feel bad for my wife too. Cause that shit's gotta be embarrassing. Just like, you know, your fiance has passed out. Like they, the, the people in our little, like little village with us were probably thinking like, man, this, this woman's about to marry this guy. Like I feel bad for her. Right. And um, I remember actually the night, the night before my wedding, everyone saying like, don't get too drunk. Don't get too drunk. Please don't get too drunk. Don't be hung over tomorrow. Don't be shitty tomorrow. Um, and then the morning of the wedding, people saying the same thing. Cause it was an evening wedding. And like, to the point where like, I now know that they were like taking turns and taking shifts, trying to make sure that I wasn't drunk and like trying to police me on like only like one or two drinks per hour. Cause they knew I wasn't going to not drink. So they were just trying to keep it as minimal and responsible as possible. Um, and I actually remember uh, my mother-in-law who had never called me out of my shit. I love this woman to death. She's amazing. It is the first time she ever actually pulled me aside and said, Miguel, you're getting married to my daughter tomorrow. Please don't get too drunk. Don't, don't ruin this day for her. Please don't ruin this day for my daughter. And, you know, that was like one time where it kind of sunk in where I was like, shit, like, no one on her side of the family had ever said anything to me like this. Like my mom has said things. My brother has said things. My best friends have said things and they've always found their ways, whatever. Cause you know, they love me and they could be honest with me, but this is the first time that it was coming from my in-law side of the family. So that was kind of a reality check. So I was, I respected that. 
And um, the day of my wedding, I, I, I barely drank. I think I had maybe like a couple drinks in the early afternoon. And I, I was very, very, I was a hundred percent sober during the ceremony because I wanted to at least give my wife that much respect. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also remember too, that we had like these special drinks that were included for our wedding and I shit you not pop. We weren't married for two seconds. As soon as those papers were signed, I was like, we'll take our drinks. And like, I'm double fisting mine and hers. Like oh it literally took God. zero time. We're at the reception. I'm already throwing them back. Like it was, it was bad. Um, you know, to the point where like, there's like a five hour window on my actual wedding day is the only like five hours that like I a hundred percent remember everything else is like, I remember we were doing this, this day. I remember we were hanging out at this pool, but I don't remember some of the events. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember we were doing this and I, I just like, I couldn't remember like those details that you're supposed to remember. You're in this beautiful country for 10 days around these amazing people, this awesome food. And like, like I remember, you know, going to this five-star restaurant that we had reservations for, but like, I couldn't tell you exactly the meal I had until we got the paperback that said, this is what we served you that night. And so it was like, that's the stuff that like, I was, I would sit back and I would think like, damn, but while I was in Jamaica, these thoughts, like, although I knew that there was something wrong, I didn't care because there was always a justification. So at that point it was like, all right, you paid all this money for this trip. You know, now's not the time to think about this, get all your money's worth. So, you know, just kept going on and on and on. And, um, yeah, that was, I think that was the first time that I was really telling myself like, man, I think you have a problem. But I, again, I wouldn't say it out loud. And it's funny because I don't know if this is like a sign or what, but I actually remember at the airport. So I'd never flown before. And, you know, all I know about flying is that people always have these signs, you know, like with a name and they're picking people up. And I remember that there's this one, there was one guy sitting in the corner of the airport and it was just him and two, him and one other person. And there was this little blue sign and it said friends of bill. Wow. Now. At the, at the time, I thought that this was just, you know, some guy named Bill is getting picked up and they're waiting for their friend, Bill. What I know now is that, man, you can find a meeting anywhere. Cause what I know now is I know what friends of Bill are because I've been in the rooms. So looking back, I'm like, shit, I walked right past an AA meeting in the middle of the airport. And, you know, it's like, you can find help anywhere. And, um, I remember seeing a sign as well, somewhere in Jamaica. I don't remember where it was, but I seen a similar sign. I said friends of Bill and you know, it was, it was kind of the same thing, but I never, I didn't understand what it was, but like looking back, it was like, it was weird because like the seeds were like getting planted in my head, even though I wasn't really ready to make that step yet. And I didn't even know what it was. Right. Uh, but, but yeah, coming, coming home from Jamaica and it's crazy too, because I'll tell you this story as well. So we got married in May 13th. Uh, the two months later, so as soon as we got home, we, we were trying to expand the family. We started from day one because um, that, was, that was the whole thing. We wanted to, we wanted to have a, a child right away. So we were trying and July 10th, home run derby, being a big Yankees fan. That's why I specifically remember this night. Uh, July 10th, 2017, um, Aaron Judge's home run derby debut. I'm at my apartment. I'm at the bar with a buddy of mine who's a big Yankees fan, and we're slamming down a few beers. And the bar's like three blocks away from my house. We go home to watch the home run derby, where two of my other the the guys who were actually my two best men in my wedding, 
met us at the apartment. They're not big drinkers. They like to drink, but they're not huge drinkers. So they meet us at my apartment and I run out of beer. My wife is sleeping because she works overnight at the time. And I was like, shit, guys, we're out of beer. I'm going to go grab some. And they're like, ah, we're good. I mean, you don't have to grab beer. Like we're done drinking anyway. We're just chilling because it was thunderstorming that night. Right. And they were like, we're cool. We're, we got to drive home in a little while anyway. And I was like, well, y'all cool. I'm not. I'm going down the street. And I, I was going back to grab more beer. So I pull out of the little six pack shop. And before I know it, I'm in someone's car. Like I'm hitting their car for two seconds. I didn't know what happened. And you know, when you know that you're over the legal limit um, and you know that you're about to get in trouble, I know this is about to be my second DUI because I'm doing the math. And in Pennsylvania, 10 years, 10, you have a 10 year window in which it's it uh, to accumulate DUIs. And so I'm doing the math. I'm like, shit, my last DUI was in 2009. Shit, I'm only at like year eight. This is about to be my second DUI. Like I'm fucked. I'm going to jail. Wow. I'm getting in trouble. So I have, I have the six pack that I just picked up. Um, this lady ran the stop sign, which I know it doesn't matter. I'm still going to go to jail because I'm still going to get a DUI. It doesn't matter. It's still a car accident. Right. And uh, I remember I called, I called my two best friends that were in my house and I said, yo, V, Eddie, wake up Mallory. Bring her down here, please. I'm about to go to jail. They didn't even have to ask me why. Like they know, like what else could it possibly be? Like his dumbass is getting a DUI. So it took the cops about 20 minutes to respond to the scene. So in that time, I'm sitting on the curb. I'm pretty much damn near crying. Um, I think the cop at first thought I was crying because of my car, because I had I had this really nice Toyota Avalon, which was like at my time was like a dream car to me. Like I remember like my neighbor had an Avalon and I test drove her car one day and I was like, yo, I'm gonna get one of these one day. And so I just got in that car like a year before. And um, so I crashed the car. I knew it was total from the beginning. And I think the cop thought that that's what the problem was at first. So he comes up to me and he's probably like 10 feet away from me. And he goes, what are you upset for? Do you not see that? And he points at a stop sign. He goes, the accident is her fault. You'll be fine. And so uh, immediately I go into cocky mode and I'm like, all right, cool. So I get up. I'm like, this close to his face, bro. And I'm like, all right, so are you going to handle the insurance information, get her information, um, do this, do that? Like, you know, I have this $30,000 car, like this isn't okay. And I start going into cocky mode because I think that he doesn't know what the situation is. So mm -hmm. at that point, he must've figured it out. So my wife is showing up at the time and my wife is right behind me. And I'm, I, like I said, I'm face to face with this cop. I think my wife thought that I was a like either getting field sobriety tested or whatever she thought, but she comes up right next to me and she's, uh, she's kind of like touching my arm a little bit. The cop leans in so close. I'm talking like nose to nose. And he goes, if you think I'm stupid, try me again. If yeah. I were you, I would get in your wife's car right now and call me in the morning. He withheld, he withheld all the insurance information. He kept like my ID and my, like pretty much he kept everything that you would normally get the night of the accident. So that way I would have to call him next morning. My mm -hmm. wife, when I tell you pop, she had never grabbed me so hard. She turned into like the incredible Hulk. Like she pretty much damn near almost body slammed me into the car. Wow. Like she rips me into the car. She realizes that this is like her one chance. Cause she knows I have a tendency. I won't stop talking. Like 
she knows I'll probably be like, no, I'm not this. And I'd, I'd argue with him, man. She was able to grab me out before I could get another word out. Got me in her car, got me home. I call him the next morning and he pretty much told me like, man, you need to get your life together. Uh, people could have been hurt last night. You know, you're lucky only the cars were totaled and this and that. What I do know now looking back um, is I believe two things happened that night. I believe that he realized that he had a chance to maybe help someone where maybe maybe giving them another chance might have helped them more than putting them in jail. Yeah. Um, and the other per the other driver was also impaired. And I think that he didn't want to give multiple DUIs. Um, at that point in my state of mind, I would have probably tried to take her down with me if I'm being honest, because I knew that I knew that she didn't look right as well. Um, cause in my mind, the entire time I was waiting for the police, I was like, damn, we're both getting DUIs. Yeah. So, um, I, I don't know if it was a little, a, a little, a B, whatever the case may be, but I didn't get a DUI that night. And so he pretty much told me like, get your shit together. You know, you, you got, this is your chance. So the reason that that sticks out to me so much is cause my son was just conceived like three weeks later after that. Wow. So looking back that little guy that you just saw, you know, five minutes ago, um, he might not even be here right now. Cause I would have got my second DUI and in the state of Pennsylvania, your second DUI is seven days in jail, 23 days in, uh, work release, 60 days in house arrest, followed by five years of probation. So I would have had to deal with all that. But one thing is for certain, I would have been, I would have been in jail and work release for the next 30 days in which that was the time frame that my son was conceived. So God was working in all his ways. He gave me that chance. He gave me that blessing. Um, I wish that was enough to sober me up then. It it wasn't quite enough yet. I mean, the, the cycle went on for another, that was July. So it went on for another seven months because I didn't sober up until May. Um, yeah, eight months, nine months. But it it's the entire time she was pregnant, that's when the wheels started rolling again. Like, man, you got to do something. You got to do something. And I remember many times I would come home from work. I was actually a restaurant bar manager. And uh, I would come home and many times I'd be like, man, you're over the legal limit tonight. Like, thank God you didn't get pulled over. Thank God you didn't get pulled over. Actually, another, <laughs> I remember one time I got pulled over too and I got pulled over for speeding. Yeah. And the cop flat out told me too. He goes, he goes, how much have you had to drink tonight? I said, uh, probably like two drinks. And he goes, oh, the typical two drinks. And I go, yeah. And I remember like, I just, I pulled this move on him. He saw, I had a blunt wrap in the back of my car and he saw it on the floor and he goes, what's that for? And I looked at him and I was like, I mean, we both know what that's for. And I said, I'm not doing it while I'm driving. You know, it's just like, I'm taking it home and whatever. And I flat out told him, I said, he said, do you mind if I search the car? And I said, I said, look, I had a couple drinks. I forget how I said it to him, but I came off with like so much cockiness that he thought that like, I had a couple of drinks, but I wasn't over the legal limit to the point where he was like, man, someone being this honest, like whatever, just like he was like, so almost like pissed off or he was pretty much just like go home. Cause I was only a few blocks away from home. Okay. Um, I had a rental car at the time. I remember getting followed home by a police officer from the bar and he pulled out behind me cause I made an illegal left turn and I made my turn so quickly that I got into private property and he literally stopped in the alleyway where I was at. And I could see him just staring at me, but I was already on private property. And I don't know if he wasn't allowed to pull me over anymore because his lights weren't on yet. Like, I don't know the law to that point, but 
like just so many, I just threw you like four different situations in which I should have got a DUI. And those were all in like within like three or four months, um, three of them in which my wife was actually pregnant at the time. So I just, I just, I had enough and well, I thought I had enough. And, you know, when she, when she gave birth to, um, even my mom tell me like one of my good friends showing up and he brought a six pack and I was drinking a beer in the bathroom at the, at the hospital while my son is like two oh, days wow. old. Wow. And my mom even said like, you really have to have a beer now. And I was always justifying like, oh, we're celebrating. We're celebrating. Yeah. The nurse came in and said, you can't drink in here. And I said, oh, I'm not drinking in here. This is to go home with. They just dropped it off for me to celebrate. Meanwhile, 10 minutes later, when she left, I slammed it in the bathroom and hit it under the trash. Like yeah. all that, all those alcoholic tendencies in which I thought I was being normal. And I wasn't, man. Shit was just, I was just out of control. But this, the entire time I knew I had a problem and it just, it wasn't working for me. Well, you know what I want to say, uh, Migs, that um, the one thing we don't talk about, and at this time, you were simply allergic to alcohol. And it's not until most of us really go to rehab or we go to Alcoholic Anonymous or, you know, we get some type of education on the subject. So in your case, I feel bad for you because you're a good person. You know, somehow the whole situation with your parole officer and you finding that little loophole where you could drink kind of triggered the addiction, right? That same addiction that your father was dealing with. That's why some scientists say sometimes genetic or, you know, you have those same traits where you have that predisposition to be allergic to your drug of choice, which is alcohol. And you beat yourself up over it, man. Or you play, you replay it. And it's like, they say God protects, you know, um, kids and fools, you know, people who don't know any better. And, you know, all of those times where you got into these jams and somehow you wiggled out, it was because God was protecting you. You're a good person. Um, but it's important for you to know that, that, and for anyone that's out there, like when I was younger in my, in, in, in my twenties, like you were, I used to say to myself, damn, man, I'm making up. Like, why did I do this? Why did I do that? Why do I feel like I have to drink when I wake up? Why do I have to have this beer at this moment? Why do I need to? You know, I was doing the same kind of crazy boneheaded things. And um, it was because we was allergic. Right. We had friends. I had friends the same age that, yo, I'm good. I'm done drinking. I, I was never done. I could never be done. I would have to keep drinking, keep drinking, keep drinking. Um. And that's why it's important for us to do what we're doing with the podcast by sharing our stories to let people know that there's going to be a million young kids coming behind us today, right now in this moment, somewhere going through all of these mistakes and they think that their struggle is unique, right? It's just their struggle, but they're actually allergic. And I just wanted to point that out for anyone that's listening, because you was a pretty young guy, 17, going into your 20s, you know, um, and you're dealing with this stuff. So that's real serious. The good news is, you know, you have this beautiful wife. Now you have your son. He's young. And you're coming to the tail end of this cycle. Right. You're coming God. to the tail end. And you tell this amazing story um, about um, coming home one day and, you know, your wife, you were tired. You didn't really drink that much. You stopped somewhere. You had about two beers. So it was like a normal night for you, but you just kind of was thoroughly exhausted. So you come home, 
you know, you have this newborn kid. Your wife is amazing doing everything, but she's exhausted. She kind of calls you on bullshit when you try to be like, she's like, look, your son is hungry. Feed your son. And you're like, look, I'm tired. And she's like, look, I know what time you get off work. So let's like, let's not play that game. Feed your son. So you're like, all right. But it was at that moment where you was looking in your son's eyes and you realized that you didn't want to be like your dad and everything clicked for you. Can you talk to us about that? Absolutely. And uh, bear with me because I, I don't think I've ever been able to tell this story without getting choked up. Um, cause this is like, you know, this is like a game changer in my life. Um, so working in the restaurant business, it's very, very easy to, to lie to my wife about what time I was getting out of work. Um, cause there is no end time to your schedule. The restaurants open till 2 AM. So, um, anytime between 8 PM and 2 AM, I could legitimately be getting out of work, whether I'm lying or not. It that could be true on that given night, depending on how busy we are. Cause it's just a volume thing. So, um, many, many nights I would tell her I'm still at work. She would say, Hey, are you at work? You know, I'm still here. Meanwhile, I'm at like a bar, like five blocks down from the house and I'm drinking. Um, this went on even before I got married, before my son, everything. It was just, that was my routine. So, um, when my son was like a week old, a week and a half old, I went back to work and I probably pulled that bullshit on her probably three or four times. So on one given night, I come home on May 30th, Wednesday, May 30th. Uh, I get out of work early and I stop at the local restaurant, which is my favorite restaurant. It's actually one of the only restaurants in which I've actually never been like drunk, drunk in because I actually care what they think about me. I love everybody from the owner to the entire staff. It's actually where I work now. And so it's like one of the few places where like, I'd never let them see that version of me when I would go there. It's actually right next door to that six pack shop that I was picking up beer from in which I spoke of when I got at the DUI, this is all like six blocks away from my house. So I leave that bar and I legitimately only had two beers that night. It's like one of the few times I'm actually telling the truth. I only had two beers. I genuinely believe if I would have had to take a sobriety test that night, I don't think I would have gotten a DUI. Like I genuinely, it's one of the few times I actually wasn't drunk. Um, so I come home and my wife says, feed your son. He's only, you know, he's only 16 days old at the time. And, uh, I said, I'm tired. I want to go lay down. And she pretty much told me like, bullshit. I don't care. I'm going to lay down. I've been taking care of him all day. Um, feed your son. So I'm sitting on my sofa. It's probably like 11 o'clock at night. I'm feeding him. And he's just making these funny faces that a 16-year-old does or a 16-day-old does. And I just look into his eyes and I saw my dad. And I saw I saw the negative part of my dad because this is, again, before we we healed that relationship. So all I saw was all all his traits. And I just pretty much said, I had this whole internal conversation. I said, man, what the fuck are you doing? You have, you have 12-year-old sons who want nothing to do with you right now. Like, they don't even call you dad. They call you by your first name. They want nothing to do with you. Um, you know, you've skated on multiple DUIs and you're lying to your wife. You're holding your son, you know, and, and you're feeding him and you could easily be drunk and, and, and just, I was just like, man, what the fuck are you doing with your life? And I just, I broke down and I started crying and my wife didn't even see this. She was actually, she went to bed for the night already. and um. Like I just, I, I broke down just crying and I said, man, you got to get your fucking shit together. And I didn't say anything to anybody at that point. 
So Thursday, I go to work and I just decide I'm not going to drink. So Thursday, I don't drink and it's all right. It's cool. Yeah. It wasn't that busy at work. So it wasn't too bad. There wasn't too many temptations. I was able to get out and just go home and just call it an early night. Friday comes along. It's a little bit tougher at work. Now this is like, all right, now we haven't had alcohol in the system in like 36 hours. Shit's starting to feel weird. I'm actually starting to physically feel sick. Um, I didn't go through like the full blown withdrawals where I was like throwing up or anything, but I didn't feel right. Like I felt sick. My stomach hurt. You know, I had a headache. Like I just felt like shit. Um, and Friday night was like a little bit busier at work and it was, it was not easy. And Saturday I worked a, I think I worked a double or I was just really busy at work and everybody at work was drunk. I think there was people that came in like after a wedding reception or something like that. And so everyone was like extra drunk, having a good time and whatnot. And, uh, I remember sitting at the bar at work and I just remember going on Facebook and saying, I didn't even tell anybody why. I just remember going on Facebook and saying, yo, where's everybody's favorite church? Like, mm. where's your favorite church and why? Right. And I was like, I don't want something super, super preachy. I don't want somewhere judgy. I don't want this right. and that. Just where's your favorite church and why? And I let a bunch of people respond. And for whatever reason, um, I chose someone suggested a church that my barber, who is my barber also, I went to high school with. So he's a personal friend of mine. And he had mentioned this church, you know, he became a God-fearing born-again Christian over the years. Um, and I just love the example he led as a Christian. So right. when someone suggested his church and it came from another person that I that I trusted, and then I remembered that that's where he went, um, I showed up at church that morning. And so I, I go to church and um, at this point, my wife knew I was trying to stop drinking. So she actually went to church with me. Um, I think she went with me. Yeah, she went with me that morning with my son. And um, afterwards, she left early and I went up to the pastor afterwards and I said, look, I never met you. You never met me. Um, I'm trying to quit drinking. I'm an alcoholic. Like Wednesday was my last drink. Dude, I, I need help. Like I need help. I don't know what to do. And he goes, we have another church service this evening. Um, and it's in the neighboring town. What I do know now is that they were, uh, building, they were starting a new campus. And so at the time they were doing a once a month evening service to kind of launch it, raise awareness, let people know where the building was. And so this happened to be that one Sunday, that month, this wow. is May or sorry, this is June 3rd. So I show up at that evening service and, uh, I don't know if it's because of what I said to him that morning. I don't know if this was already going to be his thing, but every time he does his worship, what I know now is he throws out a whole bunch of encouraging words. He, he spits that hot fire. He's a dope pastor. Right. I love this man to death. Um, I shout him out regularly. John Schwartz with Life Church. I love you, brother. You changed my life this night. So when he's closing out worship, he goes, a lot of you out here struggling, you know, you might have marriage issues. You might have, you might have this, you might have that. You might be struggling with addiction. No matter what you're struggling with, just know you're not alone. Know that God loves you. Know that we're all here for you. And just, just know that. 
at that point, I couldn't stay in the church any longer because I was like, I was literally crying. I'm sitting by myself. My wife didn't go to the service with me. She had to get home and tend to our son. So I just, I got in my car and I started crying. And so I, I, that's the first time I Googled AA and I looked up the closest meeting and the next meeting was starting like 10 minutes from that time. And it was like a mile or two away. And I was like, shit, this is meant to be like, God's putting me in all these places. He got me to this service in the morning on a random Sunday that they're having this once a month service where I'm in this neighboring town and having me in this neighboring town now has me a couple miles away from an AA meeting. So I said, you know, fuck it. I'm going to roll with him. I'm trusting him so far throughout the day. Why not just give him my entire day? What, what do I have to lose here? You know what I mean? I'm three days, I'm three days, whatever. And I'm shaking like a leaf and I'm crying. Like, what do I have to lose? So I put my faith in, I show up at this room and I sit down quietly and everyone must've known that I was a newcomer. Cause you know, I probably had that look like a deer in headlights. Like, I'm not sure if I belong here. I'm not sure what to do. And I'm listening to people share and I'm listening to people share and I'm hearing them say their things. And, uh, that's the first time that I said out loud to anybody other than my wife. I raised my hand and I said, my name is Miguel and I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I cried and I told everybody that story about three days before holding my son, having enough. I can't do it anymore. I I, want to be better. He deserves better. And so a couple old timers come up to me afterwards. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, A couple old timers come up to me afterwards and, uh, they hit me with all the stuff that you hear in the rooms early on, you know, do this, do that, get a sponsor, talk to people. And, and one guy said something, he said two things to me. First, he told me I had the chance to be a 50 percenter. And when I asked him what that meant, he said, come back tomorrow. And mm. I'll get back to that in a minute on what a 50 percenter is on and how he bamboozled me into that comeback tomorrow trick that these old timers do, which is genius. <laughs> um, but uh, the other thing he said to me is uh, you might have fucked up with the twins. But now is your chance for your, your youngest son to not see you drunk. Mm, this wow. is your chance. This is your chance to break the cycle. Wow. Like he's he's only he's only 16 days old. He'll never he he doesn't. He, he doesn't remember you drunk. Like the brain doesn't work that way. They're not going to remember anything from a couple of weeks old. So said, so this is your chance for your son, your youngest son to never see you drunk. And this is up to you. And, uh, that hit me hard. And, uh, I asked him again what the 50 percenter thing was. And he said, come back tomorrow. So I come to another meeting. They suggested this meeting that was more for newcomers in which like anybody with less than like a year sober can really share. Um, and when I was at that first meeting, I was probably the second youngest person in the room. And then when I go to this meeting the next day, I'm probably the second oldest person in the room. Oh, wow. Um, cause it's all people in their like mid twenties, you know, um, some have to be there because they're at a rehab and it's mandatory. You know how that goes. Some have to be there. Some want to be there. But regardless, it's a room full of people and I'm probably the second oldest person in the room. I'm listening to people share. And again, I told that same story again and I think I cried again and I got some numbers and I talked to some people and I exchanged numbers. And then, you know, people told me get a sponsor. 
go to meeting 90 meetings in 90 days. They told me all that stuff, which I don't want to like thump that program on here. Cause I know that doesn't work for everybody. It's just something that worked for me early on. Um, but the, the 50 percenter thing, which I learned later on. So in our book, um, one of the first, one of the first chapters, I think it's actually in the prelude. It says 50% of people that come into the rooms, get it on the first try. 25% of people get it on a multiple attempt. And the other 25% of people at least build the foundation and they have the desire to be better. And now I'm a poker player as well. So I love percentages. I love odds. Yeah. So when I looked at those numbers and I was like, wait, 50% is way higher than 25%. I was like, I have a chance to be a 50%er. Like I have a chance to get this on my first shot. And that kind of like stuck with me. And it's something that I really, really, really wanted to do. Um, and it's, it just, it meant a lot to me. And like all those tricks on like that guy telling me, you know, you want to know what this means? Come back. You know, they would tell you cool stories and then they would leave a cliffhanger and they would say, oh, if you want to hear the rest, come back tomorrow. And it's just like all ways to keep you coming back to the rooms, coming back to the meetings. Like I said, I don't want to thump this too long or too hard because it's not for everybody. No, Um, it's cool though. You know, we family with AA and um, so definitely go ahead, plug it. I love it. All right. So yeah, it, it worked for me. Um, you know, I, I did all the, I, I did the stuff that they told me to do, man. They told me to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. I said, fuck it. I'll go to a hundred. Like right. I tried. Um, if I missed, if something happened, if life happened for a day and I missed the meeting the next day, I will go to two. Nice. If I didn't feel good, I will go to three. Right. Um, and just whatever I had to do, I was just like, man, um, like you would go, I would try and think of excuses like, ah, nah, the weather sucks. And then I would think back, bro. On July 10th last year, you drove out in a fucking thunderstorm to get beer, right, drive right. out in that same thunderstorm, show that same energy and show up at an AA meeting. Right, and I was right. like, all right, cool. And these are like the inner dialogues I would have yeah. that, you know, these old timers would tell me and they would tell me, yo, man, you would always find a way to get drunk. So find a way to stay sober, find a way to make it to a meeting, meeting makers, make it, you know, all that stuff that, you know, you hear. And, um, I, so I did that. And it worked. I got a sponsor. I started working steps. I started, you know, communicating with people, tried to do whatever they would tell me to do, whatever they told me to do. I would just do it because I figured, fuck it, whatever I'm doing for the last 11 years isn't working because I tried those multiple attempts at no drink January and this now. Like I said, I never said out loud that I was an alcoholic, but there was like little things I would try and do where I was like trying to lay the foundation. It didn't work. Like when I would do no drink January, it would last me like two days. Yeah. I right. just, I threw that shit away. I remember one time I had a hundred dollar bet with my roommate and two days into it, I said, yo, I'll give you 50 bucks and let me buy out right now. <laughs> and just like dumb shit. Yeah. Um, and there was always a justification. Oh, my favorite college football team is in the national championship. That's why it's a good reason. Yeah. So it was just always stupid shit. Um, so I figured I gotta, I gotta show that same energy and I gotta dive in right now and I gotta give it everything. So I did. And that's actually where I found, um, running really, really hard as well. Because I had prior done like some Spartans and some tough mutters and stuff like that. But it was all for like the social aspect, like go hang out with a friend. And at the end, you know, we get to drink this beer and like, I wasn't doing it for the right reasons. And honestly, I wasn't even like pushing my body to those limits. Like I was just like doing the bare minimum. Um, but sobering up at the end of May. So my 90 and 90 was June, July and August. Okay. So 
I would, I would run to a meeting. I would bike to a meeting. I would try and find a meeting on the other side of town and bike to it. Or, you know, this meeting was a mile away. So I would try and run or walk to it. Cause I figured shit, I need help. And, you know, if I only had time to go to one meeting, at least if it's going to take me a half hour to get there, plus being there, plus a half hour to get home, maybe that's two hours that I'm not drinking. So right, just right. like, I was like, I would always bargain with myself to drink. So now I'm bargaining with myself on how not to drink and just trying to buy little pieces of time. And, uh, it started becoming like, I thought I wanted to get back into Tough Mudders and Spartans. And that's originally when I was biking around and running around, that was my goal. Like, I'm going to go do another Spartan. I'm going to go do this and that. But really what I didn't realize is I was like laying a foundation and like, I was just falling in love with running because it was just like, it was like giving me a chance to be alone, talk to myself. I would actually listen to like the AA audio book. I would listen to people's stories. Mm-hmm. I would listen to everything just like whatever, just like, uh, and that's, that's when I was, I, that's when I fell in love with running and like running and my sobriety came together, like so hard, so hard. And yeah, unbelievable. I love it. I love it. I love it. You talked about one of the, one of the things that happen when we find sobriety is that we have these amazing experiences with friends and family, but we realize the beauty of like really spending a day or doing something creative sober and you talk about hanging with your friend justin at the baseball game and um being able to save a bunch of money um and you know and just not being able to you know just having a really good day eating a lot of food going home with money in your pocket then you also talk about the two-hour Steelers trip with your mom um which was important and you was able to do this trip with her and be sober with mom and then um and then you went on after that to really have this good relationship with your wife and becoming a better father and being connected and then forming this amazing company um staying fit one day at a time, um, which I think is brilliant, by the way. These are the benefits of sobrieties, right? You get to do these new things. You get to explore life. Um, how did it feel really just being sober and doing these normal things? Um, how did it feel to you reconnecting with your friend and your mom? Absolutely. So so shout out, Justin. I'm so glad you brought up his name because I can't believe I would have made it without actually saying his name and forgetting that. Um, he's like one of my best friends. He's like almost was like an unofficial sponsor. He's like a brother to me. Like, I love that man to death. I would do anything for him. Um, he sobered up and got his life together. Uh, probably about, he just celebrated, I think four years. I hope I'm not wrong on that time frame. but he, uh, he got it together a little bit before I did. Um, and I don't want to, I'm not going to tell too much of his story just because especially I'm actually getting a chance to interview him on my podcast. So anybody who's listening, they'll get a chance to tune in and hear Justin's story because his story is unbelievable. He's like, he's, he's a true big brother to me and I love that man to death. Um, but that, that day you speak of was really, really cool. So I'm only at that point, I'm only five weeks sober. Um, I sobered up on May 31st and this is July 4th. Um, he's a huge Braves fan and I'm a Yankees fan. And you know, at the time I hadn't done anything. Like I had never done an event sober. Um, I was staying away from the bars. Um, I stopped going to, uh, my pool team league, uh, because I didn't want to be around other people drinking. I didn't know how I could handle myself, control myself. I didn't know where the temptations would be. So the only reason I felt comfortable going is because I was like, all right, he's sober. Like he's not going to let me do anything stupid. Plus he doesn't have a driver's license. So like, I can't drink. 
because yeah. I'm not going to drink and drive from New York. So I was like, even if I want to do something stupid, I can't. So I was like, this is an opportunity. I can really test myself. Um, I don't want to say test myself, but I could see, I could see how it would feel to try and be in some of those social um, situations. And so it was so cool because we go to Yankee stadium, we get to watch the Yankees Braves play. And again, that was the first time that him and I had ever hung out and both been in the same room sober together because we had always been drunk and partying together. And then he had some sober time under me for a while. And I would pick his brain about sobriety for like the last few months um, that I was in active uh, using. Um, and I would ask him questions because I knew that I had a problem, but again, I wasn't ready to make that step yet. And so he would always, he did it the right way. Like he would never pressure me. Like he never said, Migs, you're an alcoholic. It was just like, Hey, if you ever need anything, I'm here. If you have questions, I'm here. And I think he was one of the few people that knew I was trying, I was trying to get the car started and I was trying to get it out the driveway. Um, so we went to the Yankee stadium. It was unbelievable. Like you said, I was able to eat like five times the amount of food and spend like half of the amount of money because we weren't spending it on beer. Like we would just go get like a different like meal, like every other inning, we would just take turns going to grab food and it still didn't match up to the $11 a beer that I would be drinking like every inning plus the pre-gaming plus this plus that. And it was, it was crazy. I was like, that was the first time that I found out like, holy shit, I can go somewhere and I can have fun sober. Like, I don't have to drink. Like I can still enjoy myself sober. And it was like, it was a huge foundation. And it was a, it was a life-changing experience because I remember I came home too. And I went to a meeting right after. And I was like, I was like bragging at the meeting. I was like, yo, I just went to a Yankees game and I didn't drink and this and that. And it was like, so cool. It was like, man, I was like on that, like, you know, in that like first 90 days where you have like the pink cloud and then shit is bad and you're back and forth. That was definitely a pink cloud day. It was like, nothing could go wrong. Everything was perfect. Um, and I loved everything about it. So that worked out. And then it, it gave me the, the strength and courage to, again, um, the year before two years before me and my mom went to our first ever Steelers game and it was in Baltimore and it was just like a, a drive out and drive home same day. The year before I sobered up, we went to Pittsburgh and it was not a drive out. It was like a trip in which I drank the entire time. Like I even remember pulling, we went into the gas station at one point to fill up halfway between there and Pittsburgh. And I remember I rolled a, I rolled a blunt and drank a beer in the parking lot while my mom was getting gas. And I remember my mom looking at me like me smoking weed never bothered her because I didn't act stupid. I didn't act like a fool. Um, whatever weed, honestly, it, it, at the time, it never bothered anybody in my family, but like drinking did. And I remember my mom looking at me like, so she looks at me and she says, uh, do you really have to have a beer right now? And I was like, well, it's Saturday night. You know, I just got out of work. This fun. And I had to, you know, whatever. I was always able to justify it. And I remember like, we'd look at restaurants and like, you know, normally when you're making a road trip at like two o'clock in the morning to get to your Airbnb, it's just like wherever serving food is acceptable. But like, I had to look for places that were also serving beer. And again, I would always justify, oh, this place is a craft brewery or this place does this and that. And it it was always easy justification. So we'd find a place where I could pretty much get drunk before we even got to the B&B. And I was drunk the entire game. Uh, I don't remember half the game. My first time in Pittsburgh at Heinz Field, and I don't remember, I pretty much don't remember anything because I was blackout drunk from pregame tailgate until coming home. Um, and it was pretty much a squandered experience. But 
coming back to the next summer now, I went to that game on 4th of July with my best friend. So now I have like a different foundation. So I was like, all right, cool. I think I'm going to be comfortable going to Pittsburgh with my mom, especially because again, it's all about, you know, people, places, things. So, so I was like, all right, cool. My mom is obviously a huge support system. Um, she won't drink around me in this situation. So I was able to go there and it was, it was able to be different because the one thing that was really, really cool is, you know, looking back, I wouldn't suggest anybody do this. Um, I did it and I was able to get through it, but I wouldn't suggest this. I went to all the same restaurants I did the year before in which I got drunk at, but I went to all of them just to eat food and have a good time. Now I'm, I wouldn't suggest that to someone in their first 90 days of sobriety because that might be a little dangerous, right. um, but it's just what I did. And it was kind of like a cocky competition thing. And I think part of it was, again, because I was with my mom and I know she's the one person that would be comfortable literally smacking the shit out of me if I even tried to drink. Right. So so uh, I, I, I did it and you know I made it through sober. I was able to get through the game sober and it was like so much fun. And I remember every single moment Every, everything about that day was just like unbelievable. It was so cool. Um, and it was just beyond powerful. And, uh, it was, it's, it was just, man, words don't explain. Cause I like, these are the times I'm figuring out like, man, I could go do these things. I can go see the Yankees. I can go see the Steelers. I can go do all this stuff sober. And I'm not, I'm not having any less of a time. As a matter of fact, I'm spending less money and I remember everything. So it's even more fun. And it was just like, it was just so powerful, so special. And um, I'll even go into this one as well. My mom is like, she's unbelievable. So being a big poker player, um, a dream of mine was to always go to Vegas to play in the World Series of Poker, um, to go to Vegas and be able to play poker in general. So for my one year sobriety, again, these aren't things I'm suggesting that other people do, just things that I did and I was able to work it out. Um, So on my one year sober birthday, I go to uh I go to my favorite the restaurant I actually work at. Um I go to a meeting, I get my one year coin, and then we hop on a plane and my mom actually booked a trip to Vegas, in which I was going out there at the time. Two days later, they had what was gonna be the largest poker tournament in history, the largest live tournament ever. Um, they were planning it. It was like huge. It was only, a, it was a $500 buy in which they were guaranteeing that the winner was going to make a million dollars. And it was just like, it was life-changing stuff. And like I said, it's, I just wanted to be a part of history. It was the largest tournament in history. Um, so I was like, I need to be a part of that. So we flew out there. I had a chance to play in that tournament. I played, I played great. Um, I actually made it to day three. Uh, this tournament had 28,371 people. It wow. was the largest live tournament in the history of poker. Um, and I came in 414th place. Awesome. So, awesome. so yeah, I finished in the top one and a half percent, made a few thousand dollars on this trip. Um, and I did it sober. So it was just, again, it was so cool. And one thing that really stuck out to me that was super awesome. I had this guy on my right. And if you look back at my Facebook pictures, you can actually see him. Um, in one particular picture, the guy kind of looks like Gary Busey, but he saw, like I was using my one year coin as a card protector. And he asked me, he goes, is that what I think it is? And I said, I don't know what you think it is. And, uh, he pulls, he pulls out his coin and I was like, yeah, so it's definitely what you think it is. (laughs) So we start talking sobriety and whatnot. And it was like, so cool. He's like, you know, tell me like, yeah, it's crazy. The gifts that sobriety can give you and you can be out here and you could be doing this. And I tell him how, like, yeah, I just. I'm one year sober just two days ago. So this is like a really a blessing. And, 
you know, I have a, it's, it's just so cool. I have a one-year-old back home. My wife is super supportive. I'm showing pictures and this and that. And, uh, fortunately we both were doing pretty well that day. So he, he's next to me for like the next 10 hours. And I already talk nonstop as it is. So for the next 10 hours, him and I are just talking about anything poker and sobriety related, just all the opportunities. I'm asking him where I could catch meetings while I'm in Vegas and doing this and that. And it's just, it was just so cool to meet people. And it's, it's funny too, because I've actually met so many sober people, even in the poker community. Um, I remember one really, really cool time where it was a similar situation. Someone goes, oh, I see that. And he like made a joke because, you know, I don't know if you play poker at all, no. but um, so, you know, raising people in, in poker, you raise, you, you raise the stakes. So he goes, I see your one year coin and I raise you. And he picks up, uh, he pulls out like a three year coin. Nice. And I'm nice. like, oh, dope. <laughs> and the guy, there's seven of us at the table at the time. I shit you not. This story is a hundred percent true. It's so cool. So the guy at the other side of the table goes, Oh, cool. I see your three year and I raise you and he pulls out like seven or eight year coin. Oh, the guy on the other side of the table. Now, meanwhile, there's one guy at the table who I know is sober, but he's keeping his mouth shut. So there's another guy at the other side of the table that goes, oh, cool. I see that. And I'm going to pull this out. And he has like a 15 year coin. Wow. So my my good friend who's also at the table who I know has a bunch of years, he looks around and he goes, anybody else? And like, there's it's him and one other person and the other guy takes a sip of his beer so it's clearly not him (laughs) so he goes all right and he pulls out his uh like 25 year coin wow so there's seven of us at the table including the dealer and five of us are sober that's amazing and it it was so cool so i feel bad for the one guy who wasn't because not that he's an alcoholic or has any problems but he must have felt super uncomfortable drinking a beer five alcoholics right so like the next for i mean we were all at a poker table and I don't think anyone cared about the poker game for like the next 20 minutes, half hour. We were all just talking about like being sober and, you know, being able to do these things in life sober. And it was, it's just so cool how I get to meet people. And even to piggyback, like there's a guy named Tony Miles who actually interviewed on my podcast. He came second in the World Series of Poker in 2017. And I followed his story when I was only two months sober. And I, I was following his story all through July or uh, 2018. And uh, he came second for $5 million. Wow. And this is the World Series of Poker is like the one that's on ESPN every summer. It's like the big one. You Everyone has probably clicked on it at some point if they watch ESPN. Right. And so when you make it that far, you get a lot of TV time. And every time he had TV time, he talked about um, being sober, being in recovery because he, he wanted to use that platform for good. Um, and, you know, let everybody know that you can do these things sober. You can do this. You can do that. And I actually remember reaching out to him on Facebook. So the next year when I was coming out to Vegas, I reached out to him and I was like, look, dude, I followed your story last summer. It's unbelievable. Congratulations. I think this is so cool. I'm going to be in Vegas this year. You were a huge inspiration because I played sober when I was drinking still. Um, and now that I'm back in it sober and I'm a winning player again, it's so cool to see like you, you kind of like, you're like a, like a poker hero to me now. And like, fast forward a little bit, him and I like became like, social media friends. I haven't had a chance to see him in person yet because he, he plays for a living. So he travels a lot, but I had a chance to like interview him on the podcast and tell his story and just like that's big, man. so many, so many people in this world. And it's just so cool. Cause he spends 25 minutes just talking about like 
being there, doing it sober, focusing on things. And then, you know, at the end of the day, making $5 million. And the cool thing is he doesn't go back out and party it off. You know, he still has the money because he didn't do anything stupid because he wasn't drunk. So it's just like all the opportunities that were like given is, it's just, it's, it's so, and it's, it's crazy, but, um, yeah, it's unbelievable. Like how I was able to find out, especially in that first year that like anything I did drunk, anything I did drunk, I was a hundred percent able to do sober and it was just as much fun, if not more and significantly more money in my pocket afterwards. I love it. Thank you for that. Well, I wanted to congratulate you. After all of that, you was able to get your personal training certification. Um, and that's really exciting. And congrats on that. That's a big deal. And on October 31st, you finished your first marathon, um, which is extremely a big accomplishment. You started a successful Facebook group, staying, um, the Staying Fit to ODAT group. You have over 500 members of your group. And you have this amazing company, Staying Fit the um, One Day at a Time. I love it. Staying Fit, old that. You got the, the merch and everything. So, Migs, man, it looks like you're on top of the world. You're riding the wave of recovery. You're rebuilding things with your family. I'm very, I'm extremely proud of you, bro. I mean, you, do, you did what a lot of people couldn't. You found your sobriety at an extremely young age and you took care of business. Um, while you still have a lot of time and then you immediately went out there to share your story. So this podcast is definitely dedicated to all of the young kids out there from 17 to their mid twenties who just feel like, you know, you don't have to screw your whole life up and figure it out in your forties. You could get it right. You know, you could be that 50% of people who figure it out. Um, And that's really inspirational before we go. And before we wrap, I want you to tell everyone about your company, staying fit one day at a time. And can you give us any tips um, for, for me, for someone like myself who wants to get into running? Can you talk to us about the benefits of running daily, any tips and just tell us about your company? A hundred percent. So staying fit, ODAT, um, anybody who's ever been in the rooms, um, ODAT is just an acronym for one day at a time. Um, something that I learned immediately does not just apply to sobriety. It applies to life because you have to approach everything one day at a time. Um, it's just the only way you're going to get through it. And uh, just like a, a really quick story on how it started. So I was training for my first marathon. I was supposed to run in LA and I broke my ankle. And when I broke my ankle, I kind of fell into like a pity party, a poor me, poor me party. And um, I tried to reach out for like support in the running groups. But, you know, when you surround yourself with 10,000 runners who are not alcoholics, uh, a lot of them just tell you, oh, cool. You broke your ankle in January. Just go ahead and enjoy this winner's new beers and do this and do that. And that wasn't for me, obviously. So I created this group on a Saturday morning on uh, January 18th. And um It's called Stang Fit Oda. And I just pretty much put out there on Facebook. I said, look, anybody who is uh, struggling with alcohol, drugs, mental health issues, you know, if you just want a safe place to talk about your recovery and your fitness journeys, then come join me. Whether you're a runner, a cycler, uh, a swimmer, a crossfitter, a power lifter, because running is my thing. But I know that um, not everybody's a runner and alcoholism is my struggle, but I know that not everybody's an alcoholic, but I know that we all have a lot of struggles. So it kind of just started off with just a few people, a few local friends, people started telling people, um, 
it blew up. This was January 18th of 2020. Um, now, as of today, we have 580 members. Um, I was able to recover from that injury, get back into running um, through physical therapy. And I was able to run my first marathon um, in October 12th. Uh, and it wasn't that good of a time, but I was just able to take in the scenery. It was just unbelievable. Um, my goal is to qualify for the Boston Marathon. Um, I actually hired a running coach myself. So because I'm also a personal trainer and a running coach, but I also wanted to hire a running coach because I wanted to be able to learn from a coach. Um, and I figured too, you know, how can I tell people to go hire a coach if I'm not willing to hire a coach myself? So, so I wanted to hire a coach. I wanted to learn and, uh, shout out Alicia again. She's also in recovery. That's why I say her name. I also interviewed her on my podcast. Um, she's unbelievable and she like literally wins races. Like she's a fucking beast. Um, but she's, she's been training me. She's, she's brought me, I'm like, crushing personal record after personal record. Um, running just became my true, true passion. Um, and I just wanted to surround myself with the like-minded. Um, and that's where the group just started. Like I said, I just wanted people to have a safe place where they didn't have to talk about recovery or fitness. They could talk about both. So you can have someone that can go on and be like, Hey, I just ran a 10 K today and I set a PR or maybe this guy's like, Hey, I'm just not feeling it today. I went out and did my 10 miles. It wasn't feeling good, but I hit a meeting afterwards and we're still sober and we're doing this and that. And it's a safe place where you can talk about both of those. Um, and you have people that open up on the struggle regularly. Um, obviously, I won't say a name, but like we just had someone who just opened up today who says, hey, I've been chilling out in the group for a little while. I don't know if you saw this post, but uh, they're like, hey, we, I've been chilling out in the group for a little while. Today is three days sober for me. I've been seeing all the inspirational posts that everybody's putting up there for me. I love what you guys got going on. This is really, really cool. I'm just glad that I have a safe place that I can open up. I can turn to my treadmill and my bike. I can work it off. I can talk to my family and this and that. And it's just like, that's what the group is all about. It's a safe place for people to open up, say what they say, what they feel, say how they feel, and, and also talk about their fitness goals, their journey, what they have coming up. Um, you know, I'm trying to qualify for the Boston Marathon, but you know, you might just be trying to get out and get your first five mile run or run your first 5k or, you know, just be able to run a mile without stopping. Um, there's no limitations. There's no requirements. And I tell everybody too, you don't even necessarily have to be hundred percent sober to, to join the group. Um, the only requirement is the desire. You know, if, if you're struggling, but you know, you want to put down the bottle, come join us because there's people that hang out for a couple of weeks before they can get down the bottle and they see some things, you know, and, and the, the motivation pushes them. Um, and it, it just gets them to that point where they, they feel encouraged. They feel loved. Um, and you know, some people might not feel comfortable going to the rooms of AA or NA or overeaters anonymous or whatever the case may be. And they just might want to keep it a little bit low key. Some people might not even want to share their story yet. They just want to see other people sharing because they're not open. They're not comfortable yet talking about it, but they just want to know that other people are out there. And they're like you said earlier, they want to know that they're not alone. They want to know that they have people out there that can support them, that can help them. Um, so the, the group has been, it's, it's, it's my baby. I pour everything into it. Um, I don't go one day without putting in hours and hours of into it, whether it's posting, promoting, talking, to people trying to do the podcast um we now have the gear we have hats t-shirts hoodies tank tops um racing singlets a portion of the money is going to different recovery foundations uh we just did actually a fundraiser in january of 2021 
to celebrate the one year birthday of the group in which this is so cool. Again, I'm going to get chills telling this story. So uh, I wanted to like, I wanted to do something. And I honestly thought that I was like, all right, let's see what people can afford. What's reasonable. And, you know, we'll get some, my buddy will make some shirts and we'll send them out and people will support the fundraiser and a hundred percent of the proceeds after overhead, I'm just going to get to different recovery foundations. And at $35 a piece, we got representation in 35 different States here in the U S eight different countries. Um, and after the overhead, we raised $1,300 to give the different recovery foundations wow. in which the first one was just a benefit at synchronicity recovery foundation. Um, tomorrow I'm meeting up with Oasis recovery foundation. There's also a post in the Facebook, uh, in the group in which different people that participated in the race can tell me different organizations, recovery community groups that have meant a lot to them and helped them. And I'm, I'm going to send money out to them as well. The goal is to send a hundred dollars to 13 different places nice. um, and just spread out the money a little bit, help out. We're going to have more fundraisers coming up um, just do different kinds of challenges. And like I said, it's, it's just to, to bring everybody together um, and to just, to just show that you to get everything they can possibly get out of themselves between recovery and fitness and to just show what their bodies can do, what their brains can do and what they can really to show what we really are capable of. Um, as far as advice, man, I just say, you just got to get out there. You just got to start. Everything is just like, even with fitness, it's one day at a time. Like right now, if you can, if you can run a quarter mile, cool, go out and walk, walk for, uh, or run for one minute and then walk for a minute if you have to. And keep doing that until you can't do it anymore. And then take a day off of recovery in between. And then the next day, try and do that. And maybe try and run for 75 seconds and then okay. walk for a minute and keep building and building and building because it's progress. It's progress over perfection. You know, you're not going to get out there and run a marathon in a day. You're not going to get out there and, and uh, swim an Olympic meet in a day. Um, we have world record holders that are in there. We have a woman who is... She ran 440 miles in 21 days. Um, we wow. have a guy who's about to run 32 marathons in 32 days for suicide awareness. So wow. it's, I mean, these people weren't doing this overnight. It's, it's progress. It's building. It's, it's reaching out to other people. When you have a bad day, it's not giving up. It's talking to people, letting other people pick you up because you know, you're not alone. We know we can't do this alone. I say this a million times. I'm not a doctor. I can't prescribe. I don't, I'm not going to go ahead and tell people that AA works better than this. I'm not going to tell people that smart recovery works best or this rehab was the best or this recovery center was the best. The only thing I do know for sure, and I've extended this challenge out any podcast that I've interviewed on anyone that I've interviewed on my podcast. I've said this a million times. I'm still waiting for that email. The one thing I know for sure, no matter what program works for you is that you can't do it alone. You have to reach out to people. You do need help. And to this day, if there's that one person that's listening that insists that, nope, I didn't go to any meetings. I didn't do this group. I didn't do that group. I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't reach out to my wife or my husband or my mother or my father or my children. I didn't talk to anybody. I just did it alone. And here I am with multiple years clean. If that person exists, you're more than welcome to email me at stangfitodat.gmail.com. I'd be more than happy to get you on the podcast and hear how you did it. Um, but I've been extending that for six months now, and I'm still yet to meet that human being. And quite frankly, I don't think they exist right. because the only thing I know for sure is that we cannot do this alone. And that's what I'm here to let you know is that you don't have to. We're here. We love you. And and we're, we're all out there. And if you want to follow the journey, um, if you yourself identify 
as an alcoholic, an addict, overeating, um, suicidal thoughts, mental health, anxiety, whatever your case may be, if you have the desire to, to put that behind you and, and focus on recovery, then come join us. Staying fit, ODAT, O-D-A-A-T, um, three different words. You can join the Facebook group. We'd love to have you introduce yourself if you want or stay quiet and low key, whatever works for you. If you don't identify, but you love what you're hearing right now and you just want to be a part and you want to see the fundraisers and you just want to donate or you want to help out or you just love everything that's going on and you love hearing a good comeback story, you can follow us on Instagram. You can follow the podcast. I said, man, we're, we're just trying to save lives. I'm just trying to help people. And that's all it's about. Like the group is my baby. And it's, to be honest, it's, it helps keep me sober. Um, and I've said this to my wife too. And it's one thing that she pointed out to me, you know, she said, babe, you started this group. Like you can't like, you know, if, if, and if, if Joe joins the group and he goes out and he picks up a drink, he can quietly just hit the leave group button and someone might not even know any difference. They'll just think he stopped posting or whatever the case may be. I can't do that. I started the group. If I, if I leave the group or if I stop posting or if I go out, people are going to know because I'm so open about my sobriety and I'm cool with that because I'm, it's like challenge accepted. Fuck it. I don't want to go back out. I'm not saying I'm never going to, because we, we don't know, like we have to stay ground, you know, one day at a time, but I know that I never want to go back out right. and I'm going to keep doing everything I possibly can. Um, I'm going to keep trying to work a program. I'm going to keep trying to talk to people when I have a bad day, when I think that the thoughts are creeping. I'm going to reach out to the people like yourself, um, someone like you, who I want to give you a little bit of credit real quick, um, because, you know, Pop is he's a true big brother to me. All right. Um, someone that I can genuinely say I love in this community, someone who has been there since day one of meeting him um, virtually. I can't wait to eventually meet you because you're not too far away from me. Um, but I remember I heard your story on Soberoso. Shout out. Uh, we love you, too, Dora. Um, and I heard your story and I was like, yo, I need to meet this dude. I need to talk to him because he's dope and sober is dope. Mm -hmm. And I love everything that he's doing about that. And so I sent you a message. And to be honest, I thought it was going to be like, ah, cool. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Cause you were so well-established at that point. Mm -hmm. I thought it was going to be like, Hey, thanks for listening to podcast. I appreciate your support. You know, keep doing what you're doing. Um, and you said that stuff, but you also said, if you need anything, reach out. And I remember like, that night we talked and the next morning I had questions about the group from like a legal standpoint and, you know, trying to whatnot and like reaching out and saying, Hey, whenever you have time, if you could uh, get back to me and then we could chop it up a little bit. And again, I was expecting like, maybe like, Hey, yeah, let me know a couple of days that work for you. And it was like, yo, if you can call me in like 10 minutes, I have a little bit of time right now. And it's like, yo, like my man is making himself available on the spot and I fucking love it. So I want to give you your credit where it's due as well, because you're there for the community and you're showing the love and you're, you're living the program the way that I'm sure someone did the same thing for you. And so for you to do this for the next person. And now when anybody reaches out to me, you know, I'm going to make sure that I can pick up the phone and I can take that call right away. And I'm, you know what I mean? And, and that's, that's what we're all here for because if one helps you and you help me and I help them, then what do we got? We now have four sober people that are all helping out. And who knows how big that umbrella gets and how many people can fit under that umbrella. And when the storm comes down and it's thunder and lightning, brother, we all fucking there. We all sober. We hugging. We loving. And yeah, so you need to get your credit where it's due as well because sober is dope. So go out and get a hoodie, get a hat, show some love, 
Um, because I know I did it. Them shits go fly with some fresh kicks and <laughs> pop is just doing amazing things for the recovery community. And bro, I genuinely, man, I love you, brother. I, love I, you I, I too, fucking bro. love you, bro. I love you too, man. Thank you for the love. Thank you. Can you let, and I appreciate that from the heart and I'm proud of you for being a trailblazer, man. And, um, we're going to go far. We're going to hit critical mass and take our message to the world. And you always have support in us and sober is dope is always home to you. Let everyone know where they can get the, um, staying fit. Oh, that swag. Where can we, find the swag and how can they get into contact with you so right now i'm trying to get um i'm trying to get an internet site or something official where you can where you can buy it for right now um if you just join the facebook group um you'll see i'm constantly posting pictures or if you're not in the facebook group and you just want to purchase something um you can email me at staying fit odat s-t-a-y-i-n-g-f-i-t-o-d-a-a-t at gmail um you can just email me and whatever information you need, we do ship internationally. Um, we actually have hoodies on their way to Canada right now. We have t-shirts yeah. right now that are in Australia, Canada, England. Like we have people showing love. And like I said, a portion of the proceeds are going back to recovery, um, different organizations as well. Cause I just want to return the love the same way other people helped me. So if you want to support the brand, um, definitely reach out and, and I, I appreciate the support and we love you all for that. And the community loves you because. You never know. You never know whose life you're saving. That's right. That's right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you heard it from and the keep an best. eye out for the website. It will come soon. Word. And I'm willing to help with that. We'll talk about that offline. Ladies and gentlemen, you heard it from the best. Our friend Migs, Miguel Reyes from Staying Fit Old Dad. You gave us a lot to digest today and we are on fire. Thank you so much for extending so much love and value. I swear you're like the first person to come on that could really speak to a younger audience and an older audience alike, bridge those two worlds together and give the next generation hope that they can find sobriety in their youth before it's too late. We're losing too many people to overdoses. We're losing too many people to alcohol. Alcoholism is the third leading cause of death in the United States, which is we have to do a lot to change that. Um, and the message of sobriety is powerful that we go out there and help people man i love you thank you for joining us ladies and gentlemen you're listening to the sober is dope podcast and that's a wrap with our episode staying fit all that with miguel reyes i love you all and i'll catch you guys on the other side I need you like I needed God Memories of an alcoholic conceived in scars No remedy to explain this psyche barred Beyond jail, every cell was in need of bars God forgive me please, memories of need and weed I was used to psychedelics, had me seeing threes I was used to Christian brothers, had no quiet near No brandy, eventually was my final fear Passed the bogey pop, after death I missed my pops Cried the ocean, held my breath, had no need to stop but devotion gave me second chances, needed God Sounds romantic on Atlantic Ave, I found my God Jesus Christ is real, addiction is an affliction curse One description seemed depicted in a motion hearse Walking dead, unconscious when conviction hurts A crucifixion of the human birth consumed in dirt God help us all, recovery was diction first The decision falls, hope my benediction works On my knees before I crawled, asked God for help And after all what I saw 
Lord was her daughter Well, not cash for gold Forgiveness for a lonely soul Not forgotten in the homeless cold or home alone Whether crack pipe or whiskey gin Addiction spins Around we go sick within Such a vicious gin Such a vicious cycle But there is hope when the love is there God mercy for the boy Help the man appear But there is hope when the love is there God mercy for the boy Help the man appear Now I'm sober 